Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. My special guest tonight is Marie Metaphor Specht, a multidisciplinary artist, poet, and educator residing in Victoria, British Columbia. Published in various outlets, Marie's debut poetry collection, Soft Shoulders, is a testament to her creative prowess. Beyond poetry, she collaborates across disciplines, working with filmmakers, engineers, dancers, and musicians to craft an immersive experience for them. Currently, Marie serves as the sixth poet laureate of Victoria, British Columbia, contributing to festivals, art events, and poetry slams nationwide with a belief in the transformative power of art. She's dedicated two decades to coaching and creating spaces for aspiring young poets. Marie, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. All right, fantastic. Let's begin this poetic journey. All right, Marie, what is poetry? Mm, Well, Michael, I come from the spoken word tradition, and I like to think of oral storytelling as one of the most ancient and profound human traditions. It's one of the first ways we shared knowledge. It's very early entertainment And I think when we're tapping into poetry and sharing poetry, we're kind of tapping into that very long, very human tradition. I also think uh, it's a distillation of your human experience, right? We're all islands of our own unique human experience interacting with the wider world. But poetry builds a bridge and it like closes the spaces between us. Um, I think poetry, the poetry that strikes me in the heart and stays there, often is speaking to some big idea or question that's been rolling around in the back of my mind without me noticing it and pulls it into the light, makes me feel a little less alone in my experience of being human. Oh, wow. (laughs) That was really nice. Beautifully stated. Flesh out the concept of the island and the bridge. That was beautiful. Talk to me. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we go about our daily lives and we all carry this complex history of joy and suffering Mm -hmm. and experience. And sometimes that can be lonely, right? This whole human desire to be seen and understood. It's a very complicated desire because it's kind of like a a look at me, look at me, don't look at me. (laughs) But I think art art and poetry um, can tap into the foundational shared human experience in a way, um, you know, it's like our job to notice the small beauties Um, and connect them with the profound, big ideas uh, so that people feel seen and they feel understood in a a way they may not have before. Wow. Wow, very nice. Knowing what you know about the human experience based on your lived experience, 
Is poetry important? Because there are people out there who believe that poetry is dying. So what are your thoughts? Oh, that's not true. I know from personal experience working with youth that poetry not only changes lives, it saves lives. Like I have seen... Mm -hmm. I have seen participating in spoken word slam poetry teams for like high school students. I've, I've been a coach and a mentor. Uh, I have seen it absolutely transform young people's lives and change the direction of their lives. I've seen them find their voices and find a way to tell their story about how they see the world in a way that people will listen and to, um, have the opportunity to experience their value in the world, the value yes. of their voice. And um, it's absolutely transformative. And it is by anybody who thinks poetry is dying needs to visit a couple <laughs> high school slam poetry teams. <laughs> I, I, I agree. Marie, I'd like to hear about an early experience when you learned or realized the power of poetic language. In oh other words, goodness. what sparked your initial interest or love of poetry? Oh, there's so many moments I can think of. Uh, you know, I had a teacher in grade eight, and um, he started this thing where on Thursdays we would have a creative writing block. And he didn't guide us much. He just said, you have to turn something in at the end. And that's where I wrote my first poem. And I was just very engaged with some novel I was reading and I wrote this poem and it just kind of flow like it just flowed out of me and mm-hmm. he he read it and recognized it as being like whoa this is interesting and good and asked me to share it with the class and it was kind of the combination of me having that experience of tapping into I don't know what some people would refer to as the news or getting into the flow and yes. and creating something in a sitting combined with having an elder, a respected elder, like, you know, vocally recognize the value of it. And, um, you know, in sharing it with my peers, it was a thing that I made that, uh, that somebody deemed important enough to share. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think that made a really big difference. Also, when I was young, somebody gave me a book of Pablo Neruda's love poems. Uh, I think it was a, yeah, I think it was a family friend. And it was a beautiful book with illustrations and I just poured over it and was like, wow, people can write like this. Like you can write and not (laughs) worry about a beginning, middle and end and play. Mm -hmm. Grammar can be a place where you play instead of a place where you are scared that you're not making mistakes or, you know, where where you're frightened to make a mistake. Instead, it kind of was like, oh, language can be a playground. It doesn't have to be, um, yeah, a place of rules and, and, you know, following like a set way of doing things. And I think that's the big appeal to poetry for me early on was like uh, the lack of rules that I, that I could really play. Very nice. So Marie, what do you write about? What are some of the predominant themes of your work? Well, uh, my book, Soft Shelters, is, oh, man, you know, when I've been on a little book tour with it, and I've been crafting Mm -hmm. these sets of poetry right now, thinking about kind of the collective experience we're having with 
climate change and what's going on globally and trying to craft sets of poetry that feel like a place to pause, a place to rest, a place to be nurtured. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. nurturing is, is a big theme in the book, this idea of the interpersonal and the way we weave these shelters for each other with, with the people that we connect with and the ways we interact. They also touch on uh, climate grief quite a bit and what it is to, you know, be mothering a young person, uh, knowing that, you know, our ecological future is going to be very different than the one I had when I was young. Um, mm -hmm. And I think all of that's intertwined, you know, that go kind of goes back to this human experience. What are the common things we're going through? What are the worries that are uh, predominant and how are we processing them? How are we, how are we surviving this, you know? Very nice, very nice. So how does a poem begin for you? Is it with an idea, a feeling, a form, or an image? I think it climate. could be. I mean, that's a good one. Go ahead, I'm yeah. sorry. No, no, that's okay. I think it could be any of those things. Often, mm -hmm. for me, it begins with a line or an image, though. Like, uh, I'm not fully aware of what the poem will become, but I, there's a phrase that a phrase that encapsulates an idea. And then I like to think of it as like a sweater that I'm unraveling. I'm just start pulling the thread. Maybe I'm pulling multiple threads. And when I, you know, I might pull this thread and then take that chunk and put it away for later because it's actually a different poem and then pull this thread over here and sort of see where it takes me. Um, there's been a few times where I've sat down to write a poem with a very clear intent and uh, I think it's I think it's good to operate both ways. I think it's good to leave space for um, the more intuitive, uh, like tapping into the muse or the flow, and then also to you know flex your writing muscles and be like, what if I want to write about this? And you know, sitting down with it, with an intention and a theme. All right. You know, all great writers, and I include you in this list, have great writing influences. Who are some of yours? What makes them special in your eyes? Oh, lately I've just been enamored with Ocean Baum. Um, Ocean has this way of capturing so much in a statement. Um, mm -hmm. I have this, this habit with books that I'm reading, whether it's poetry or a novel, that if there's a, a phrase or something I want to return to, I dog ear the bottom corner of the page. And when I was mm -hmm. reading... Uh, on Earth were briefly gorgeous, which is Ocean Vong's novel. The whole there's just so many dog-eared pages, you know. And and that's the thing to like hold the story and the thought and the beauty in the microcosm of a line, one line, but to also have it come together in a larger work uh, is just mm -hmm. something that he he's the master of that. Um, I've also been lately actually enjoying Jack Hirschman's work um, and this is something I haven't read in the past that I just sort of picked up and have been really enjoying as well. All right very nice now before I ask you to share a piece a piece of your work tell me about your name Marie Metaphor Spect it's quite striking <laughs> the metaphor piece and the name is beautiful itself talk to me about your name I like it. 
Oh, well, you know, it's funny. It was it was a funny thing where uh, at the early, early stages of social media, I didn't want to have social media with my last name Specht attached to it. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, the, the name Specht is a German name and a Specht is a woodpecker in German. <laughs> a little bit of trivia okay. for you there. But uh, I and I, I was just thinking, like, what should my handle be on Facebook? And I really like alliteration. And uh, I yes. chose Marie, Marie Metaphor because I do, I when I write, I really care about metaphors. And I also think metaphors yes. are just a very powerful way of connecting with people. That thing about closing the spaces between between people, presenting them with an idea in a way that they can connect to it with, like, you know, an image or a symbol or something that kind of translates it from this personal experience you're having into something that they can universally understand and then translate it into their own personal experience. And I think metaphors, well-crafted metaphors really do that. And uh, it, Mm -hmm. you know, it was sort of silly at first. It was just Marie metaphor, my social media handle. And then I think I was performing at a slam or an open mic and I got introduced that way. And I was like, why not? Let's just let's stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. I like it. <laughs> it stands out. Marie, please share a poem. I think uh, the poem I'll share first is actually the title poem of my book, Soft Shelters. To build a shelter in the eye of the storm, use only the softest materials. Let household sheets and pillows be walls and roof. Let the baby blanket pulled from storage be foundation. Let the cushion from your fever bed be threshold. The quilt that carried your grief all that long spring is here, waiting to hold you while wind howls and rain thunders. Come in, love. Come in. Father's hunting jacket be the door. While his father's work boots buttress the walls and grandmother's umbrella supports the roof, let mother's best dress be window, its stale perfume your lullaby. Come in, love. You can sleep for 90 days. Come in, love. I will bake bread and sing songs. Let This tender nest be a defiance. Let this comfort be a deep-rooted uprising. Let this fortress be a revolution of softness. Come in, love, and let the storm be. I promise our soft shelter will hold. Yeah, thank you. All right. Soft shelter. You know, I pondered yeah. over the title of your book, and I wondered to myself, now, what does that mean? <laughs> At mm-hmm. the time, I didn't know. What does that mean, a soft shelter? And I'm, I was wondering, if it's a shelter, then I guess it would be something that's palatable to the system, and it would be soft in that regard. Let's mm-hmm. have that title for me some more. Talk to me about that title some more. Break it down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like to think of um, the 
incredible strength to be found in softness and that there is a way of relating to each other with softness and compassion and understanding, which exhibits a great strength. And it is, um, I, I think in a lot of ways, it's part of our path forward as humans inhabiting this planet together um, with more and more of us here and if we could if we could lead with softness more often and then i also was thinking about this idea of shelter and the ways that we mm-hmm. shelter each other emotionally physically um the ways that we take care of each other you know because the book yes. does deal with climate grief and this idea of where are we going you know the world can be incredibly beautiful but it also can be very difficult and how have humans mm-hmm. gotten through hardship they've always gotten through hardship yes. by working together by taking care of each other so thinking mm-hmm. of um soft shelters like in that poem that i just performed i'm i'm building a verbal blanket fort for my loved ones to come in and rest and just wait out the storm somewhere where they can hear songs and bake bread and sometimes we need permission. We need an invitation to rest. And I think rest is very important. Wow. You know, I was also thinking as you shared the piece and one of the words that was in the piece was quilt. And it made me think about my grandmother being a quilter and how she worked with other, other women in the community to create craft quilts. And I was mm. wondering, why did Marie not title her book? I don't know. I was thinking about quilting, bringing bringing patches together. I don't know. I was just, that was just playing in my mind, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. That was just something that I was thinking about. I don't know. Yeah. Wait, yeah. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Well, my thoughts, I actually have a poem. It's funny that you bring this up because I just shared the last poem in the book and I have a poem, which is the first poem in the book, which is called how beautifully we are unmade. And it's about, it uses the metaphor of weaving which in my mind really? is similar to, yeah it's similar to this idea of quilting where you're taking parts yes. and you're putting them together to make something greater than the sum of the parts and mm-hmm. and i i think i really wanted the word shelter in the title because it's this idea of shelter being like a safe haven a place to rest and yes. i like i yes. like to think of this book out in the world as a portable mm-hmm. soft shelter for anybody who reads it that you know, that a shelter can be a book, a shelter can be a conversation, you know, like it, it, it's not necessarily a roof over your head. There's other forms of shelter and the ways that we take care of each other. Well, it's a perfect title. Would you be willing to share the piece that you're talking about? The first one in the uh, but, book? I'd love to hear yeah, it. Yeah, I would love to. It's called How Beautifully We Are Unmade. There is a canopy stretched on a boundless loom. It is forever being assembled. It is forever being unmade. There has always been this tireless weaving. The star trails of my ancestors form the sturdy warp of this shelter. In this life, many have offered bright strands of their love, pulled from the bottom of their own shelters. Many have unraveled, just a little. For me, I shuttle the west of their offerings across the warp of those who came before. They twine to an indigo fabric always in flux. 
often I forget I am sheltered until I wrap my body with this cloth, my beginning so tangled with its end. Sometimes my skin is woven indigo and my scars become star trails. Sometimes my fingers are loom. In this life, I have offered each tiny love and each vast love a thread unraveled from my own raw edge, my bright filaments a dismantled shelter in their hands. Look, I tell them, look how you can build yourself. Look how beautifully you can be unmade. Yeah, so that's the actual first poem in the book, uh, whereas the title poem is the last poem in the book. (laughs) All right. You know, I'm sure you've heard this before. You know, I've listened to probably 450 more than that voices over the years. Your voice is like a soft shelter. Oh, thank you so much. That's a beautiful compliment. No, it really is. It really is. And this is a question that I usually ask later in the program, but I think I want to know the answer now. What is the relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice? Oh, it's so hard for me to pull apart. Even those very, very early poems back in that creative writing class, I I have a habit of reading it out loud to myself while I'm writing it. Like I need to hear it spoken. I need to feel mm-hmm. it in my body. And there's something about like the words, where do they live in my body? It's almost like somatic, like when I say shelter, when I say uh, father's hunting jacket, like these are all personally connected to my life and my history and, Mm -hmm. you know, the denotation and connotation of those words, but also my personal connection to them. And like, where do they resonate in my body? And I think Mm -hmm. um, it has always been my voice is part of it. And it's kind of funny because I do struggle with um, vocal cord nodules. I actually... Um, it was a few years ago where I was losing my voice once a week and uh, there was talk of maybe having to surgically remove them, which would have been very frightening because that surgery can permanently alter the sound of your voice. Um, wow. Yeah, but that's when I was living somewhere a little drier. And when I moved out to Victoria where it's more humid, um, it hasn't been the same issue out here, which is lovely because... Um, I, I do believe that my voice is a big part of not not only my delivery, but also my process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. That that stopped me in, in, because the synchronicity is always important to me. Yeah, yeah. And I've been worried about my vocal cords as well. We can talk mm-hmm. later. <laughs> yeah. So you're the first person to ever mention that to me. And I don't know why that... Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk about that later. Thank you so much. Yeah, All right. we will. <laughs> yes, I it's love a, that. It's a, lo- it's me, a loaded one. <laughs> it's loaded. Tell, yeah. me, <laughs> tell me about the cover of your book. It also is soft. I know. Isn't that like it's actually soft to touch? <laughs> Isn't that wild? <laughs> I got to tell you that the, the the physical like sensation of that book cover was a happy accident. It was not intentional. 
Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I couldn't be happier about it. The image is by Maria Kassab, and it's a photo mm-hmm. collage, and um, it was meant to be kind of abstract, but if you really take it apart, there's a landscape and uh, a shot of an interior with a blanket fort sort of superimposed over each other. Um, mm-hmm. Even even if nobody can tell that's what it is, uh, that's kind of the intention that's imbued in this image, which is this idea of, of the soft shelter of the blanket fort. <laughs> All right. What I'd like to know now is... <laughs> What is the most valuable piece of advice you've been given about writing? We're going to take a brief break. So I'd like you to think about that during the break. And when we return, that's the question that I'd like you to answer. All right? Oh, sounds great. All right. Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Marie Metaphor Specht. I'll never get it right, Marie. You know that. <laughs> That's <laughs> you know all that. right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never get it right. <laughs> In the middle of the night, I'll wake up and it'll be right. But right now, I'll never get it right. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. So, all right. Thank you. I appreciate that. No harm intended. I asked you a question. Mm-hmm. What's the most valuable piece of advice you've ever received about writing? I think it would have to be that when you're not writing, you're still writing the poem. And for me, I think what that does is it helps with the anxiety or, you know, the imposter syndrome that comes up once in a while when you haven't written something new that you're excited about in a bit. That am I, can I still do this? Is this, is this who I am? And you can kind of relax into these fallow periods because the fact that you're an artist and a writer means that you are a noticer, means that you're you're thinking about things and there needs to be that pause, there needs to be that rest process to gather the stimulus that will later become the poem. And um, hearing that has like really allowed me to kind of relax into those times and feel confident that there will be active writing times again and um, and to not, you know, you still want to work at it and you want to force the pen to paper and, you know, having a daily practice is really healthy. But I think um, just this understanding that 
poetry is about the way you interface with the world around you, your understanding of the world around you. And you got to go out there and be in the world. And you got to go out there and collect those images and those ideas, those conversations, those relationships, those beautiful shining moments. And you can, you can fill your bucket and then write the poem. <laughs> but what if you're afraid to fill your bucket? Because if you feel it, you don't know what you'll find or, I don't know, what if you're afraid to fill your bucket? What do you do? Oh, I think sometimes leaning into the areas that are a bit scary can be fruitful uh, because I think mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're afraid of looking at it, there's a, you know, maybe there's a reason, there's something crunchy there um, that mm-hmm. is worth exploring. And if it's something that, uh, is worrying you, you know, if you're afraid, chances are there's other humans out there with similar worries, um, you know, and you have the power to give voice to it. You have the power to, you know, like so much of writing can be healing for the writer and for the, the audience, you know, if you let it. And not every poem will be that way, but you have an opportunity with your words to work through things in a way that that can be healing or calming or increase your understanding. You know, human beings are uh, meaning makers. We make meaning. And that's, for me (laughs) anyways, I really resonate with that. If I can make meaning out of a situation, um, there's a a calmness that can, can come over me. And there are very difficult things in this world that we have to deal with collectively and individually. And um, those can be the scary, difficult things that you don't want to engage with. And I'm, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. saying this also with the understanding that you need to have the foundation and the um, wellness to pursue that as well. There's no responsibility to dig into trauma if you're, if you're not ready to, you know, there's this thing working with youth in slam poetry where I tell them you don't have to bleed on the stage. You know, there's a way of Mm. you can talk about big things and you can talk about hard things. You can even talk about big, hard, personal things, but you need to do it in a way that leaves you feeling better about it, not worse. And there's no, no reason to, um, to do it unless you're ready. And unless it is a part of your processing and a part of your healing. Please share a poem. All right. I think I'd like to share Rather I Worry, um, because maybe it sort of links to what we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. Frowning, tight-knuckled at the steering wheel after preschool drop-off, I think of his ear, backlit in breakfast light, all shell pink and orange juice glow. A soft moment of refuge before his parking lot tantrum. It started with an empty water bottle. He wouldn't leave the car, wouldn't enter the building, wouldn't tell me why. Until gravel kneed in the parking lot, I held him eye to eye. Then through salt and snot, he told me it was the granola bar he ate on the drive over. Rather, the peanuts in the granola bar. Rather, the lack of water to wash them from his mouth 
rather the potential deadly reaction of a classmate, rather the safekeeping, rather the worry. I have dreams where my heart expands and contracts with such force, my t-shirt billows flapping over my chest. It is not an illustration of exaggerated love, but the pounding panic of each buzzing fear swarming my chest in unison. I blame the weight of the world. Rather, I blame the slow apocalypse. Rather, the news cycle. Rather, the future. Rather, the worry. Together in the aftermath, we crouch in the parking lot watching the wasps retreat. They leave only aching softness in their wake. I tell him, some worries are for bigger hands. I explain this is not for him to carry. We count ten breaths on my fingers, then lock our knuckles into a makeshift shelter. I promise to keep his worries safe. I will hold them, and I do hold him, always. On my way home, I pass the encampment in the park downtown. I notice a tent, the backlit orange of a dusty sunrise edged with shell pink and surrounded by crows, their wings pulsing like syncopated lungs. Yesterday, driving past the same park, he had asked me, why? So I spoke about people doing their best with what they are given and without what was taken. Rather, I spoke about choices. Rather about circumstance, rather systems, rather trauma, rather privilege, rather love. These are big ideas for a five-year-old, and I don't know if I'm doing it right. Rather I worry I'm doing it wrong. Rather I need to learn how to manage with all I have been given and without what was taken. I realize I'm gazing at my knuckles instead of the road. And when I look up, I see that I'm speeding through a school zone right next to the park. I take a breath and resurface through the buzzing. Love, I choose to remember we spoke about love. Yeah, that All one's right. called Rather I Worry. All right, what an epic, epic piece. I'm wondering listening to several several of your pieces now. Does it hurt you to write poetry? Oh, if no. Not, why not? Tell me more. Uh, it doesn't hurt. I feel like, I feel, and I, and I feel this way because I've had this feedback and I regularly get this feedback at performances or, you know, now that my book's out in the world from people read my book, mm-hmm. this feedback that it helps that it it feels good that they feel seen or nurtured or um that it's even when it's a poem like rather i worry which is you know about being anxious and about how how we talk to young ones about the troubles of the world mm-hmm. that it it yes. does that that thing where it pulls that fear that ugly worry that thing and pulls it into the light so we can all look at it and have this experience mm-hmm. together and not feel alone in it. Um, so 
when I write about an experience like that, I'm making sense of it. I'm making sense of it and I'm doing some good with it. And I think for me, it's, it's an act of healing. It's an act of moving forward. Thinking about what you just shared and the poem mm. and the world, in this world, Marie, as we both know, there's good, there's bad, there's ugly, as mm. well as indifferent. Mm. So what do you view as the role of a poet in modern day society? Now, you may have answered this before, but I just mm-hmm. want to hear again, what is, our, what is our role? What are we supposed to do? That's, that's oh. I like what you said. And, you know, indifference, I think we shake people out of their indifference and mm-hmm. um, provide that opportunity, that moment. You know, when I when I run a writing workshop, sometimes I like to start with a, a small prompt, which is just think about your recent past, like the last week and think about a pick an unexpected moment of beauty. You know, this idea that the poem and the art can be that unexpected moment of beauty that kind of shakes you up out of your, um, you know, your head down, walking through your life, getting everything done, which is, you know, what we have to do. But we are here experiencing this world in all of its terrible beauty. And I say terrible because there's a lot of terrible things, but there's also a lot of, they Mm -hmm. can be entwined. And I think the poet, can present it to you in a way that you are like, oh, yeah, I forgot how beautiful the ocean is. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. That's right. I should look up at the birds once in a while and marvel at the wonder of flight, you know, and and it's kind of that reminder that part of being human is also just sitting in wonder and amazement and kind of like gratitude for the world around you, you know, that there is beauty mm-hmm. there. Yeah. So when you selected poems for soft shoulders, how did you decide which poems to include? And also how long have you worked on that book before it finally reached Amazon? Oh, my whole life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay. I, I think that's often often the case when it's your first full length collection. Um, yes. But you know, it, it. I'd say I've been working on it in earnest for two years. You know, I had mm-hmm. set aside a good chunk of time to write in uh, 2019, um, and then the pandemic happened, and suddenly I was homeschooling my kiddo, and you know, it just things took a different path. But I, I would say the process of writing it um, that was surprising for me was that when you get the poems together, the individual poems, that they speak to each other in concert. There's like a harmony or a conversation or even an intentional disharmony that happens um, in poems that are next to each other in the book or in a different section of the book. And as I started placing poems, I realize, oh, this poem actually belongs elsewhere. It doesn't even belong in the book. Or, oh, there's a, a hole here. There's a poem-shaped hole in this part of the book that needs to be written. Um, and I think like the process of arranging the poems ended up causing me to generate a lot of new poetry, uh, which ended up being some of the, the actually 
two, the first two pieces I read, Soft Shelters and How Beautifully We Are Unmade, were written later on in the stage of book development. And I think that's because as I was putting the poems together, the true themes inherent in the book started to come to the surface. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, the subtle interplay of those themes. And because that's what was on my mind, these two poems were written um, in that process. So the poems in the book are arranged by themes? Yeah, well, there's uh, there's four sections in the book. Um, okay. So there's The Body is a Shelter, and that one kind of is a home for some of my poems about pregnancy and early motherhood. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then we have Unraveling and Becoming, and that section is a lot more about the interpersonal, like about the, the ways that we interact with each other. And then there is questions for the slow apocalypse, which is where a lot of the climate grief and uh, general worry about the world around us live. And then the final section is the alchemy of becoming more, which is mm-hmm. how, like, kind of like where we move forward or this, the ways that we thrive. And of course, within these sections, there's a lot of back and forth and poems that sort of refer to other ones. But um, yeah, that's kind of how I ended up grouping it. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Please share another poem. Uh, this poem is called Nocturne, and it's after Dirge by another poet named Frank Pano. It's a response um, to Frank's poem, Dirge. And in that poem, Frank um, beautifully illustrates experience for him of being present for his father's passing and shares it with the experience of watching uh, Tibetan monks create a sand mandala and then destroy it. Um, So my response is called Nocturne. And uh, it's written based on my experience in... um, Pazcuaro Michoacan uh, for the Dia de los Muertos um, celebrations there. I have seen families make beds in graveyards, their blankets unrolled over long dead ancestors, children coaxing dreams from the soil, inexplicably still in the blue lunged night, as if inviting a haunting. I have heard Mother's spoons scrape cooking pots like shovels breaking ground. Watched them build gritty kitchens from headstones to craft midnight meals for the dead to share with the living. Though the dead stay dead, their candles speak in tongues of light. Their gold-burnished greetings dance the cemetery into somber celebration and umber-shadowed farewells. The marigolds gather candlelight to mix with moonlight, as if to say, return to the fiery earth, to the cool air. Rest and gather. You will be remade. I burned this same votive as I finally pushed my son from the earth into the air, his first lungful of breath thrown back at the world, as if it hurt to hold. I could not say for certain he'd arrived until his screaming mouth found my nipple, eyes as dark as a candle wick. 
As he tugged at the astonished roots of my breast, his fists opened to the unfamiliar air, and my heart, my heart, the nocturnal tenderness of its song. Welcome to the light. You are here to chase the wind. Your hands are made from those who came before you. Yeah, thank you. Oh, you know, I often ask guests to share a poem twice. Mm. And I'd like to hear that one again, if you don't mind. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Nocturne is a piece of music meant to be played at night. And, you know, Mm -hmm. when crafting the imagery for this poem, I was pulling from that experience in in a cemetery at night uh, with families, you know, cooking food and the kids sleeping on grandma and grandpa's grave. Um, <laughs> so it really seems appropriate, this sort of um, night music. All right. Okay, Nocturne. I have seen families make beds in graveyards, their blankets unrolled over long dead ancestors. Children coaxing dreams from the soil, inexplicitly still in the blue-lunged night, as if inviting a haunting. I have heard mother's spoons scrape cooking pots, like shovels breaking ground. Watch them build gritty kitchens from headstones to craft midnight meals for the dead to share with the living. Though the dead stay dead, their candles speak in tongues of light. Their gold-burnished greetings dance the cemetery into somber celebration and umber-shadowed farewells. The marigolds gather candlelight to mix with moonlight as if to say, return to the fiery earth, to the cool air, rest and gather. You will be remade. I burned the same votive as I finally pushed my son from the earth into the air his first lungful of breath thrown back at the world as if it hurt to hold. I could not say for certain he'd arrived until his screaming mouth found my nipple, eyes as dark as a candle wick. As he tugged at the astonished roots of my breast, his fists opened to the unfamiliar air, and my heart, my heart, the nocturnal tenderness of its song. Welcome to the light. You are here to chase the wind. Your hands are made from those who came before you. Mm. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Marie, what do you think your work conveys about the human condition? And you may have already answered it, but I want to hear it again. I just want to hear your thoughts on that. What does it convey? I think there's this twining of the beauty and the difficulty. I think there's, you know, we would like to think of it as binary and separate, but I think our joy and suffering often are entwined. And there's something, you know, it's like that every philosopher will tell you that, you know, we experience joy and profound moments because we are not immortal because we know we will die Mm -hmm. and i think Mm -hmm. it's the you know there's those those moments of 
it's profound and it's beautiful because there is an end to it and that there's this acknowledgement of the suffering that adds sweetness to the joy. But I also, I also would like to think of at least the poems in this book as um, a spell of nurturance, uh, encouragement to take a breath and to rest and to feel seen and um, kind of, like a soft shelter or a warm blanket um, for my audience. That's kind of my goal. Do you live your life like it's a poem? Oh, on my good days, definitely. What a thing to aspire to. I do think that that element of play but we do you know we live in the world at the end of capitalism and western society and you know there's a lot of work yes. to be done there's a lot of work to mm -hmm. be done and i actually am very fortunate um that it seems more and more i get to do the work of poetry or the work of teaching poetry or the work of art um as well as all that other work and i i feel very thankful and privileged that this is where my life is going. All right. You know, let's imagine for a moment that a poem, that writing a poem is like baking a, baking a cake. Mm. What are some of the prevalent ingredients that go into the concoction we call a poem? Um, you need... The, the heart of it is the flame, the spark, the feeling, the connection with the world around you. And it can be this un intangible feeling. And then you have to pull that thread and be like, how can I cause that feeling? It's not about, I'm going to write a story where I tell you about how I had this beautiful feeling of connection and beauty. No, 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 no. You need to transmit that feeling. You need so you need to use the words and the images and the metaphor and the surprising combination, the surprising syntax, the surprising grammar that will actually transmit that experience into the hearts and minds of your audience because nobody wants to hear about how you had some profound experience. You want to like you want them in that three minutes of hearing your poem to have some version of that experience with you. You want the hair on their arms to stand up. And I think a lot of how we do that is by, you know, there's a, there's a few themes that are huge that we, we always talk about in art, you know, like love, heartbreak, um, the difficulty of being human, all these things, you know, they've been spoken about so many times. So your job as a poet is to find a way to play with image and the lyrical quality of the way words fit together to say it in a way that maybe it hasn't been said before. And in a way that works through the buzzing works through the static and actually gets in to your audience. If that makes any sense. It does make sense. Please share with me the titles of five poems in the book. Any five poems. Ooh, fun assignment. I like this. <laughs> uh, we do it all okay. here. We do it all. <laughs> okay, I've got uh, Victory of Growing Things, How to Write a Poem About Being a Mother, uh, 
negative space, prelude to an apocalypse, uh, wolf path. I think that's five, right? All right. Okay. Thank you. What I'd like to know is what's important to consider when titling a poem? What role should the title play? Mm, I love titling things. I love naming things. Um, (laughs) For me, it needs to, I guess it's like the, it's your hook, right? You want people to read the poem, um, Mm -hmm. but you want, you want to give them a little taste of what's going to be in there. Um, Often when I'm naming a poem, like they don't, they don't always come with names. I have to find the name after and I'll look through Mm -hmm. the poem for like, a phrase or a combination of two or three words. Um, but sometimes it's really great to have a title that does not have words that are in the poem that can create a conversation with what the poem is saying, you know, um, like you could call the poem inheritance, but never talk about inheritance in the poem. But then by having that title, the reader reads the poem and is like, how is this related? And they make a, a separate connection. So I think that's pretty mm-hmm. exciting. But I think the main the main goal is to get get your audience to read it. <laughs> okay. Speaking of that, then this is one of the questions. What advice would you give a potential reader before they start reading the book? What advice would you share with them about reading? The I book? I would say the first time you read it, don't. I mean, this is presupposing that people will like it enough to read it a couple times. <laughs> Yes, and they will. <laughs> We're already uh, going to claim I, that. Yes, they will. They <laughs> okay, okay, let's claim that. I like that. Let's claim um, it. We're going to claim it. All right. <laughs> a, friend, a friend of mine told me recently that when they are going to bed at night, they um, randomly open the, the book to a page, and they read whatever mm. poem, kind of the way a person would pull a card from a tarot deck, and that they've been having yes. a really be- a beautiful experience doing it that way. So I think starting Mm -hmm. with that, I also had a friend who, upon receiving my book in the mail, told me that they pulled it out of the package and then the wind blew it open to a poem. And then that's the first poem they read, Uh, which I I think is kind of neat. I think like engage with it or just look at the titles and be like, which title speaks to me and then go read that poem. And then, you know. I would say if you if you enjoyed it enough to read it a second time, then the second time, if you read it in order, you will get to experience the conversations that the poems have with each other, which is something that I really cared about when I put this book together, was thinking about the groupings and um, kind of what it would be like to read it from beginning to end. Now, in terms of your target audience for Soft Shoulders, Soft shelters, excuse me. Are you hoping to reach a wide range of readers, or is there a particular group that you're focused on? You know, I would love to reach a wide range of readers. Of course, it would be uh, lovely to have as many humans read it as possible. But I do think Mm -hmm. there are poems in here that specifically resonate with the experience of parenting. So I I do think... um, and I, as not to say that the poems about parenting aren't going to resonate with people who don't have kids, uh, because we were all a kid once. We were all parented in some yes. form or another. And yes. so there's that mm-hmm. resonance. But I, I do think 
Um, you know, actually, one of my friends, Jeremy Loveday, who I asked to read at my book launch as one of my special guests, um, mm-hmm. when he came to read at the book launch, he was three days a father. And it was his first outing since the baby was born. And um, mm-hmm. I, I got to come over to their house with a casserole, as you do, and a copy of the book. And um, I was just thinking, you know, that first section, there's a lot of poems about pregnancy and then also the experience of early parenting about, you know, what it's like to be on the rocky shores of a postpartum depression and navigating what it is to be shelter for this human that means so much to you, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So When you're writing, I'm sorry, continue. continue. No, 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 that's all right. I was, uh, <laughs> I I think I was done. (laughs) (laughs) But what I wanted to know is, and again, you've answered so many of my questions already. I feel like, hey, why should I ask any (laughs) more? But when you write a poem, who leads? You or the poem? And does the poem Mm. automatically know where it needs to go? Oh, those are the beautiful moments, those poems, when they know where they need to go. And you, uh, I don't know, there's a few times I've had this experience of writing a poem and it emerges on its own. And I don't really know exactly what it means. And I sort of put it away for a bit. And then I look at it again, and the meaning becomes more clear. And that's really magical. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I believe that being an artist or a writer, there there is skill and labor involved and it's not always going to be that way those shining moments are beautiful but you also need need to know how to call the lightning how to bring the lightning so sometimes mm-hmm. i am much more in charge and i will be you know spend some time researching uh, I need a plant that looks very different when it's younger and grows into a, a totally different looking plant when it's older because I want to use it as metaphor right it can be very um kind of top down in that way and those poems aren't any less than the poems that come easily I think uh, we need to be able to do both all right please if you can tell me about a poem you were proud of writing but were afraid to share for possible misinterpretation Uh, yeah that would be questions for the slow apocalypse Um, oh really why Uh, Well, it's a poem that's essentially four minutes of questions. And because it's questions Mm -hmm. without answers, there's a lot left. It's really about engaging the audience and about having them fill in the blanks of their own answers to those questions. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of it touches on recent events, you know, like, the heat wave, uh, you know, have you got your booster yet? Did you hear about the latest variant? But also edges into talking about, um, you know, did you hear about the protest? Did you hear about what the RCMP did, which is uh, our police, um, or what the church did or government? And that there is multiple answers to those questions, but some of them are quite loaded politically. And I tend not Mm to write overtly political poems i i tend to come more at it from the personal angle um Mm -hmm. so yeah i guess there was a little fear 
that it would be misinterpreted, but uh, I'm happy to report that upon sharing it, it, it's actually been very well received. Very nice. What do you think, Marie, makes your poetic voice different? Now, you can say, well, everybody's voice is different, but true. But what makes your voice unique? What makes it stand out, you believe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we talked a little bit about the sound of my voice, and maybe I'll start there yes, because, yes. Um, okay. yeah, there is a quality to the way I perform spoken word, which I think is a little different than, uh, and I think mm-hmm. it, it's, there's a slowness and a, uh, a resonance and I kind of am going for this like kind of meditative quality. I'm not in a rush usually. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like to, I like to draw people in by being quieter and invite, I really am going for intimacy, I guess is, is, is it with the sound of my voice and the way of my performing now, when we were talking about my poetic voice in terms of like what I write about and my way of writing, I think there's a similarity there to the way I sound, you know, and I think it is this intimacy. I think like what I write is is really kind of inviting people in, inviting people in um, into my life, into my spirit, into um the soft blanket fort of my soul, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, yes. th- this, this idea of, I want, I want it to feel intimate. I want it to, um, you know, a lot of my poems address a you, like I'm actually like talking to the reader. I want them to mm-hmm. have a moment with it that feels like a conversation. Um, I want them to feel engaged with it and, and thoughtful about it. I don't know if that really answers your question, does it? It it does. It does because in terms of intimacy, your goal is to, I'm going to say, assist readers join you in the soft shelter. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I didn't phrase it like I planned in my head, but as you said, you're drawing people in through the intimacy to be there with you in that soft shelter, whatever it is. It's a safe haven. Yeah. It's a place where you yeah. can be yourself. So what I'd yeah. like to know then, do you view your ability to write poetry as being a creative gift or a creative art? Oh, well, that's the thing. Like when we talk about gifts, it's this idea that it's an innate skill. And I think, I think, um, you know, I, I'm also a high school art teacher and this okay. comes up, <laughs> wow. yeah. This this comes up with high school students who, uh, you know, some people are just naturally better at drawing. So this idea of giftedness. But I think there's so many ways to make art. You might be naturally better at this one specific way, but there's abstract art or conceptual art or installation art. And I also think that, um, for me, anyways. It's it's about this challenging of myself um, to to the, with the goal being transmitting the experience and having that intimate connection and like you know it's something that I feel skilled at doing live in spoken word 
So then with the mm-hmm. book, it became this new challenge of like, well, if I'm not here speaking these poems, what do I need to learn? How do I need to change them? What do I need to do to have that intimacy of experience with the book? And I feel like mm-hmm. I learned and grew so much over the process of writing this book. And to this day, there's still poems that live on the stage very differently than they live on the page and that that's okay. Yes. They, can, they can be these, these differences. Um, but, you know, it's humbling, you know, to, to be a poet and be out there doing spoken word and then sit down to write a book and be, holy moly, I have so much to learn about this process. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. so I th- when you say it's an art, I think art is labor. Art is practice. Mm-hmm. Art is work, you know, and a gift mm-hmm. sounds passive, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't think okay. it's a, I don't think it's ever passive. And I think even really gifted authors and writers, I would hope it's not a passive thing because they're constantly pushing themselves um, to learn new approaches or new styles or new modalities of expression or collaborations. You know, that's really where the next thing comes from. You got to give yourself something to push up against. You know, you gotta you gotta give yourself something new to reach towards to create that new work you know otherwise it gets stale wow you know we've reached the my favorite part of the show i view it as being a mini poetry concert this is an opportunity for you marie to share mm. four of your poems back to back with no interruption from me marie mm. metaphor <laughs> yeah you're on the stage you're on the stage I'm on the stage. Okay. So we are going to start with between. And um, for all those out there listening, before I do this poem, I'd like to encourage you to check in with your body and see if you can be a little more comfortable if you're sitting down. Even if you're standing and doing the dishes while I read these poems, maybe you're shoulders are scrunched up or your eyebrows are holding some tension. See if you can just find a way to be even 10 or 15% more relaxed in whatever position you find yourself in. And before I start this poem, if you want to connect with your breath, if that feels good, you know, every time we inhale, we are interfacing with the world around us in the most basic, beautiful way. There's forests and oceans of algae and seaweed that we're bringing into our lungs. We hold it there, our body changes it, and then we return it because every breath is borrowed. This poem is called Between. Eyes closed to an unburdening darkness. Mind slowed to a subdued drone. You can lose yourself in these moments between breath Drifting to the edge of some kind of sleep, but no further. What is it you hope to find in this slim envelope between tendon and bone, your body so still in your searching? Is it the soft reassurance that comes with practice? This faulty imitation of death, a strange sort of rehearsal a taste of what it could be like to exist a little less. Wandering your forest of breath 
to emerge on that familiar meadow edge, the one knifing between you and everything else. You are here to hover that threshold of self and nothing at all. With each exhalation, you collapse your questions to a breadcrumb path, then allow it to be consumed by birds. Perhaps you just want to be lost in the woods for a while. Perhaps you just want to let go, to free up your hands, to leave something behind. When you open your eyes to greet your body, you find you are a little less, a little lighter. You find you are light. Now, I think a nice poem to follow that one uh, would be Lighthouse. And this poem... Um, I actually had the opportunity to make into a cine poem, um, which is a, like a music video for a poem, kind of that idea. And I worked with a, an amazing artist named Sarah Tonin, who um, does analog shadow puppetry. So this poem about light, there's a video, and it's called Lighthouse, and you can Google it with my name, um, where the whole thing is one long shot um, of analog shadow puppetry, and it turned out so beautifully. This body is a house of light. Cotton and flint wait in my throat. When I speak to the dark, my voice ignites beacon. Come find me in the bruised part of the day. The porch of my hands wait to greet you. My arms ready to hold space for your burdens. And the roof of my mouth, it interrupts the elements. There is shelter here. Come find me when your world is storm. I will meet you, love, at the flickering threshold. When you find me, our laced fingers will throw sparks at the collapsing day when you find me I will hold you against the dark I will pull you into the light that is buried in my throat yeah okay two more you know I mentioned Ocean Vong earlier when you asked me about influences and um, and other poets so Maybe I'll do this poem. Starts with an epigraph by Ocean. It's called Negative Space. And it starts with, Tell me it was for the hunger and nothing less. For hunger is to give the body what it knows it cannot keep. Which is an excerpt from a poem by Ocean Vong. Say more. Sing me damselfly blue. Speak, red-throated hummingbird. Hum, the softest pink. Say safe, nervous. Say yes. Say it with your hands. Say it with your lips against my neck, please. Say now. Say it to the slim space between bodies. Your careful fingers speak the weight of water to my throat, 
say hunger, say need. The body is a question posed. Say soft, beautiful, grateful. Say crush. Can the body be an answer given? Say almost. Say falling in. Say could be. Say every word around the one that hurts most. It's okay. They fill the space around a hole shaped exactly like love. The last poem I'd like to share in this little mini set of four is called Caregiving. And I want to share this one because this is one of the uh, poems that was a bit of a problem child when it came to translating it from the stage to the page. And I'm really happy with how it turned out after a lot of work with uh, myself and my editor. Um, And I'm going to be reading the page version, which is, yeah. So this is called Caregiving. When I am alone and quiet enough to visit, the void eyes me up and asks, what will you leave behind? At night, when the house is quiet and my family sleeps, the void eyes up my son and asks me, is this what you will leave behind? A past lover tells me that the anger was a gift from his mother. He tells me that he has just begun to know his father. His father's gift was the reckoning of his death. He tells me, upon his father's passing, he has revisited the suffering memories of adolescence and found them lacking, softer-edged, though not without pain. Blooms of regret grow over old anger harbored too long. I gave him my aching bones tied together with all the hair I'd lost, tucked them into his cavernous hunger, and named it love. He thinks I took it back. I do not want it back. It was a gift. While my father gave me dear blood and dark chocolate proffered with frozen fingers, my mother parceled out small bits of calm and hiding them between slices of dark bread. Every gift can be a teacher if I hold it right. I have learned so much about caring, caregiving, or how to carry another person. A friend gives me crumbs of her secret sadness dropped into conversation. A not-quite-accidental path through the haunted woods of her family. A soft pain flocks between us, strange and familiar. I don't know why I want to know her like this, but I am learning to listen to the void when I am alone and calm enough to hear it. I see the quiet seed of her suffering, hanging between hunched shoulders, a slowly gestating story still growing in the darkness close to her chest. I am learning grief can give tangible weight and form to my caring. I offer my arms and ear, my shoulder and steady breath. All I have to give in this life is a patchwork of all I have been given. Last night, while dreaming, I encountered my maternal grandmother. She was more vibrant than I ever knew her in life, more joyful. This morning, I woke grieving an old loss, 
grieving a version of her that seized happiness, one that gave me a knowing smile. When I listened carefully to my own long silences, a familiar voice whispers, Don't you know yet? All grief contains love. I give of myself relentlessly and hope to be kept. I give to those who have built careful blanket forts in my palms. I collect their soft shelters and hold them. When I am alone and quiet enough to return the void's steady gaze, I answer. Every gift is a small prayer, a vow, and a resurrection. One day, they will be an inheritance. Yeah, there you go. Four poems. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you. Marie, do you think you were meant to be a poet? Yes, definitely. All right. Tell, I, me, tell me why. <laughs> uh, it's just when I feel, when I am speaking a poem and somebody's listening, even if it's just one other person, I just I just mm-hmm. feel like I'm doing what I was put here to do. I feel like I ha- I am able to generate an experience for another human of value and um it's 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 something that I would do no matter what like wherever life takes me even if I wasn't poet laureate and I I wasn't able to write a book I would still be writing you know I just mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. somehow engineered my life to have this wonderful platform which I feel so grateful for but um, mm-hmm. it's something that I prioritize, you know, it's in like at the very top of my list, right alongside like family and, and, and those important things is this form of, um, expression. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. What surprises you most about being a poet? What surprises me? Uh, I don't know. I think sometimes I, you know, when I'm teaching workshops, even though I'm Mm -hmm. really good at it and I've been doing it for a while, sometimes I get in my head about it and I over-engineer the workshop. I over-engineer the writing prompts and the activities we're going to do. And then invariably I get together with that group of humans in a room and we start talking about poetry and we start writing and I'm like, oh yeah, this is like one of the most human things people can do. And I don't need to over-engineer it. I need to create a safe (laughs) space and I need to, Mm -hmm. you know, like have that nurturing and offer the prompts and offer a little bit of guidance. But um, yeah, you know, people, I really think even people who staunchly say that they can't do it or they don't, they're not good at it. Um, they can mm-hmm. do it, you know, they can do it. And, and they just need to ask themselves the right questions. So has writing and publishing self-shelters changed the way you see yourself? Yeah, I, you know, I think for me on my personal journey of becoming a person who is comfortable holding the mantle of artist. You know, we all have our baggage and we all have our past. But for me, it was a long process of of being okay with this, being allowed 
to do this, like allowing myself to be an artist, allowing myself to value this work and um, like the unlearning I had to do around um, this is important and this is good and, and you should do this and this is valuable. Um, I think, you know, there, there's often a bit of imposter syndrome, which comes up, you know, I didn't study creative writing at school. Yes, um, I understand. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, coming from the spoken word tradition and not focusing on publishing until later on in my yes. career. Yes, all the All these, all these <laughs> little bits. Yeah, but I do mm-hmm. think, you know, publishing this book uh, with Right Bloody North, who was like my dream publisher, like I, they're the one that I wanted to work with. And then also in the process of in between submitting my final manuscript and the book coming out, I became Poet Laureate of Victoria. These uh, these small things, or they're big things, really, have allowed me to kind of put aside some of those old niggling doubts um, that mm-hmm. surface from time mm-hmm. to time. You know, they're still there and they come up, but that I um, that the work I'm doing has value to me, which I've always known, but I guess what I'm coming to learn is that it has value to others. And I think that's been, that's been profound for me. Well, I had planned to ask you a question about right bloody North being the publishers. So where are they located? They're also in Canada as well. Yeah. So they're actually the sister company of right bloody, which is based out of the States. So they, um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And, What's great about Right Bloody is they have a mandate of publishing spoken word artists. So, oh, really? Uh, wow. That's yeah. Nice. You, don't yeah. Think, you don't hear that often. All right. I like that. Yeah, it's great. And if you look at, uh, you know, the works published by Right Bloody North, my goodness, I'm um, keeping really wonderful company in terms of the Canadian spoken word scene. Um, and mm-hmm. just every book I have, from them is a beautiful object that I treasure because they're they're all so wonderful. So um, working with them was my goal, and I, it worked out, and um, I just couldn't be happier about it. Where can we purchase the book? So you can order it from Right Bloody North's website, um, which is rightbloodynorth.ca. Um, and you can catch me on a show, and I'll have books there. And then, um, yeah, it's in a few stores, but not not actually a whole lot. We didn't go the route of putting it into um, chapters or Indigo, but I've been hitting up little bookstores whenever I go on tour, leaving a few uh, little local bookstores wherever I can. Very nice. Marie, what's next for you creatively? What are your plans? Where do you go from here? Oh my goodness, right now I'm working on this amazing project called Poetry and Light and it's um in collaboration with the City of Victoria and the Greater Victoria Public Library. Um because I'm also an artist, a visual artist and uh I have this beautiful piece that I've made which is called Love Begets Love and it's a lighting installation. It's a sculptural lighting installation that I made with my art partner Gabrielle Odowichuk and it's a series of, I think there's like 42 heart-shaped tissue paper lanterns that hang from a cloud form in a space, so currently the library in Victoria. And um, they uh, run a, a program called the Aurora Program, which actually listens to sound and translates it into light and color patterns. So the hearts um, 
shift through different color patterns uh, and movement of light and can be actually hooked up to sound. So part of this project is installing the installation at the library, which I did uh, two weeks ago. And then I'm, I'm leading a series of generative writing workshops around themes that are inherent to the, pe- the piece. So themes of like love, the diversity of loving human relationships, the way it moves through a community. And then mm-hmm. on January 12th, we're going to do a live performance where the mic is plugged into the art piece and the poetry is translated into light and color live for the audience. <laughs> Wow. I wish I could attend. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> that really does. It really, really does. First, you know, we've reached the end of our poetic journey, but I'd like to say, to state, I just want to say thank you for providing the listeners, including me, a soft shelter. Mm. Oh, that was because my goal. I needed, I needed one. I needed one. I personally needed one. So thank you. Oh. I feel that your work is sublime. Oh, and thank you. Literary success is there. Congratulations on being the poet laureate of Vancouver, British Columbia. That's huge. Yeah, so, Victoria, actually. Vic- okay. Yeah, I, <laughs> okay. It's a different city. <laughs> you know I'm excited. I'm just. <laughs> Yes, I'm yes. so overwhelmed with your talent that I, I can't give anything. But <laughs> that's okay. I think you are absolutely phenomenal, absolutely oh. phenomenal, and I'd love for you to come back sometime in 2024 and update oh, us on your work. Bring students with you. That would Ooh. be nice. Bring oh, students. Yeah. That, that would be really nice. That would yeah, be really yeah. nice. I haven't had students on my show in a very long time. I'd love nice. that. Or people yeah. in your writing class, I don't care. We can build it into your curriculum. That on the very last night, <laughs> they come and sign in and use Direct Connect up to five. Uh, well, yeah. we, just, we can talk later. But <laughs> I love that. I and just, <laughs> but I'm sorry. That sounds like a lovely plan. And, you know, Michael, this has been such a joy and a privilege to chat with you. And you're just so welcoming, uh, you know, the, the fear of going live. You made it easy, yes. so I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Oh, you're more than welcome. Now, is that an audio version of your book? I've been thinking about it throughout the, the program. An that's audio in version. the wor- Yeah, that's in the works. So my publisher okay. is actually looking at creating audio versions of all the books. So hopefully that's something we get started with this year. I know that's the intent. Uh, so mm-hmm. I know ideally we release the audio book, you know, maybe on the anniversary of the print book or something like that. We'll see. Oh, well, I mean, I you should. You should. Well, <laughs> God, everyone, this has been an incredible program. Marie, I, miss, I wish you nothing but the best. Same I, to you. Uh, from the bottom of my heart. My bottom of my heart. All right, then. Everyone, thank you for joining in. And as I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, everyone. Mm. Marie, take care. Thank you. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.